Welcome to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and joining us today, Dr. Tafik Valiente, award-winning neurosurgeon and scientist at UHN's Kremble Research Institute. Dr. Valiente has invented a first-of-its-kind implant, a device that can sense an epileptic seizure before it occurs, and then stops the seizure from ever happening. Dr. Valiente, welcome to Behind the Breakthrough. Thank you so much, Christian, for having me. Before we dive into this invention, help us understand what is epilepsy? So you can think of epilepsy as uh, an electrical storm in the brain. And these electrical storms happen at unexpected times. So they are very, very scary, of course, for for the patients themselves because they are unpredictable uh, in a way. And epilepsy, by definition, is, you know, having seizures that are occurring over a person's lifetime. In Ontario, epilepsy is considered to have the lowest or portends the lowest quality of life among all self-reported chronic conditions. So it's a very disabling disorder. It's also a prototype of a chronic neurological condition, uh, which affects people in all three spheres of their existence biologically, psychologically, and socially. And how do you mean biologically? So biologically, we know that the seizures themselves can affect various aspects of cognition. So they can affect memory and learning in children. For example, when children start to develop uh, their seizures, you can see regression in their milestones. Their grades can start to precipitously drop. So it can really affect an individual's cognition. It also, we know that seizures beget seizures in the sense that a seizure occurring in one spot of the brain can cause seizures then to begin in another spot in the brain. And we think that's sort of another biological consequence of having uh, epilepsy. So we tend to think those are sort of more like the organic phenomenon of epilepsy, that they're affecting the structure and function of the brain. And then psychologically, uh, individuals with epilepsy have very high rates of mental health problems, in particular depression. So a third of patients will have clinical depression. We know that individuals with epilepsy are more socially isolated, so they tend not to seek out social interactions. We know that they have an inordinate amount of social stigmatization. So individuals with epilepsy in Ontario, for example, have the same average education as the average Ontarian, but have much higher rates of unemployment and underemployment. So you can kind of see that, you know, this this condition really affects people in sort of every you know facet of their existence. And then, of course, we live in families. You know, we live in communities, and so our families, uh, their families, of course, are affected. These individuals often require people to drive because they can't drive. They're often fearful of going out, and the parents or family members are fearful that they go out. So they're kind of overprotected in that way. So it's sort of a sort of curtails their autonomy. So it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty devastating disorder. Do we know how we get epilepsy? Like what causes it? Yeah, so it's interesting that epilepsy is kind of considered, seizures themselves are considered sort of final common pathway of so many uh, disorders. And so there's, of course, genetic uh, conditions where there could be an uh, abnormal gene and this could be inherited. It can also be acquired as a new mutation. These types of epilepsies are often very, very severe. They often manifest very early in childhood. That's a, a general class of sort of genetic forms of epilepsy. And there's acquired forms. So, you know, a good example as a neurosurgeon I can provide is, for example, a tumor. So a, a low-grade tumor that grows for many, many years, a decade or so, can then start to cause abnormal activity in the brain and cause seizures. A traumatic brain injury is another example of an acquired epilepsy where there is a scar that develops following some kind of traumatic head injury, and then seizures develop uh, many years later. So that's why it's really considered a disorder. It's not a disease per se, because there's so many different things that can affect the brain that ultimately manifest as seizures. And that's why epilepsy also coexists with other kinds of neurological conditions. So for example, autism is an example where as a spectrum disorder, it also includes epilepsy as sort of another sort of manifestation of that disorder. And what's on offer to patients with epilepsy in terms of treatment? So the mainstay is really medication. Uh, so pharmacology, you know, we always in medicine is uh, do no harm. So we, we, we start with the, mo- the least invasive types of approaches. And so medications 
have been, you know, over the last 100 years, uh, the mainstay of treatment. Interestingly, uh, having just reviewed this because one of my students is completing his PhD uh, recently, is that in fact, when we look at medical pharmacological treatment of epilepsy, since time immemorial, it seems that there's always this one third of patients who do not ultimately respond to medications. And it speaks to the biological complexity, of course. It also speaks to probably the brain becomes resistant to the pharmacological treatments because the brain is reacting, adapting not only to its environment, but to the pharmacological agents that are existing in the, in the body. And so there is this persistent one-third of individuals who, no matter what you do, they don't respond to medications. And those are the kind of individuals that I ultimately see as right. a surgeon for the possibility of some form of uh, surgical therapy. If to be totally complete, there are other uh, treatments that we'll often try before uh, surgery. So I think many have heard about dietary approaches like the ketogenic diet, uh, which in certain individuals can have uh, significant benefit. You know, we, we have a study uh, on music therapy. So that's something else maybe we can talk about at some point. And also, you know, various forms of mindfulness, uh, you know, changing life patterns. We know that, in fact, that epilepsy is very significantly uh, affected or the frequency received affected by sleep patterns and stress, fatigue, emotional states. And so, for example, we can see in young people who develop a form of epilepsy that is called the most surgically amenable form of epilepsy, which I deal with, which is temporal lobe epilepsy, that the seizures also become manifest in the late teens when they're very formative years. They're just, you know, getting into university or starting university and then all the stress of life and cramming for exams you know, they bring out the seizures. And so it curtails their ability to actually proceed with their education. But at the end of the day that, you know, when all these things have been tried, then we look to surgery as, as a potential option. So by the time they've, they're coming to you for a surgical solution, yeah. they've exhausted all uh, medical treatments, uh, any other kind of alternative treatments. Yes. So actually that's a great point actually to make is that in the past, in the community, patients would be told that surgery is the last resort. You would never want surgery. And so what happens is that individuals are strung out on medications year after year, decade after decade. And in fact, although we're trying to chip away at these numbers, is that a person who comes to me with the most surgically amenable form of epilepsy, it'll often take them 20 years to get to me from the time they had their first seizure. And so when we look at chronic disease management, then we really think about providing all the options up front so that they're well aware of what the potentialities are given their condition. So for example, now we have very clear guidelines in Ontario that if you failed two first-line medications in succession, you are deemed medically refractory and you should be sent to a surgical center like ours. And what this means is that it would reduce the time from 20 years to maybe two to three years, you know, when somebody comes to see me. And that's a critical point because as we spoke about right at the beginning about the organic or biological changes that happen in the brain due to seizures, we know that the longer you have seizures, the less likely you're going to benefit from the surgery, the less likely you'll be able to reduce your medications following surgery. And so from a chronic disease management point of view, it's very different than, for example, hip and knee surgery, where you wait until that knee is completely gone. We, of course, don't want your brain to be completely gone, you know, when, when you come to see us. And so this is part of the knowledge translation component, which we're doing as part of the provincial epilepsy strategy. We really hope that we can see people early on, you know, two to three years within them being sort of medically refractory, because we also know then their life hasn't been completely disorganized by their epilepsy because of its significant impacts psychologically and socially. We hope that we'll change this, the, the sort of the profile of the individual rather than somebody who's 20 years now into their disease, who's never worked, who's, you know, really socially isolated to somebody who's looking, you know, to their future and is at this kind of beginning of their life where we can help them, you know, uh, get past this hurdle. You've been at this for close to two decades, performing surgeries. What have you seen over this time is the unmet need when it comes to breaking new ground in the field? That's a great question. I, I just would preface that by, in many ways, you know, the needs arise with what tools are available to you. And I think we're at a very unique time in history 
from a you know computer sciencey point of view and a and an engineering point of view. And you know when I started a long time ago in university, I always kind of felt that you know math and physics were the language of the brain, and and I think it's kind of cool that that's kind of emerging where you know really the world's attention now is captured by an aging population and this desire to understand the brain. And, and epilepsy is really a, a condition which lends itself, you know, it's very tantalizing because, you know, the, the, the seizures occur, you know, in these very specific time periods and, and kind of the, the dream or the holy grail that I talk about really now in epilepsy research. And, and for those people particularly who I cannot offer them an operation where I can remove an area of the brain to help stop their seizures, which is really what we want to do, is what can we do? And this falls and sort of the what can we do is now increasingly understood in the context of a term which is called neuromodulation. And this is this idea that we can modulate alter brain activity in a way to push the brain away from states that are bad for it. And epilepsy is a, a just an example. It's a very obvious example because you can see it very clearly when somebody has a seizure. And we can see it very clearly when somebody has a seizure and we have electrodes implanted on their brain or on their scalp or placed on their scalp. So this has been sort of the dream for, for a long time is that it's such an obvious problem. It's like, wow, we can see this brain activity. It'd be great if we could detect it somehow and we could stop it. You know, it's almost like... Um, you know, it's like this carrot and the carrot is kind of right in front of you and you, you chase it and it just always seems to come a little bit closer, but just not as fast as you want. And, you know, I can obviously speak to all the nuances associated with it, but that's really the dream that I think drives so much of, of epilepsy research. And to that end, your lab, trying to fill this gap, yeah. came up with something called NeurIP, which I understand stands for Neural Interface Processor, Good. which is a fancy term for what? It's a fancy term for a computer chip. Uh, <laughs> it, it's an acronym. And, and really, the problem we're trying to solve is with Neurop is the general problem that is trying to apply to other conditions, including epilepsy, for things like, for example, Parkinson's disease, which is a movement disorder that also has associated with it abnormal electrical activity. And the general problem or the general engineering problem we're trying to solve is we're trying to create a device that can decode brain activity. So it records activity and in real time. So as the brain activity is evolving over time is to decode it and understand the difference between what's normal and what's abnormal. And then when it knows that something is abnormal is to know how to stimulate the brain in a meaningful way to push the brain from having a seizure. And so this is the general engineering problem, if there's any engineers who are going to listen to this, uh, of basically control. It's control theory, and it's control theory that we're trying to apply to the brain. The hard part about the brain, and I think everybody can attest to this, is that it's super complicated. We don't have a model of it. And so, for example, somebody might say, hey, well, you know, in engineering, you guys can like do create autopilot and whatever. And you're like, how do you do that? That should be, you know, you should be able to do that with the brain. And it's like, sure, you know, creating a plane that can fly itself is because we actually, the laws of physics are well known. And, you know, we can compute things very, very exactly because we have all the, the equations to do that. So we have a really great model of the physical world. And when you have a great model, then you can actually make predictions as to if I do this, then this will happen. And unfortunately, with the brain, it remains, you know, this really enigmatic structure, which we struggle with understanding it for two reasons. One is that we just can't sense enough of its activity. If you can imagine, you know, there's 80 billion neurons and 200 trillion connections. And then we don't have a model that tells us that if you stimulate at this strength, with this frequency, at this location, then why will happen? So that's the hard problem we're trying to solve with Europe. And, uh, you know, Europe has, you know, an older brother or sister, you know, our younger brother or sister, a new version of Europe has come out. So that's the general problem we're trying to solve with Europe. Yeah. And so the premise of the chip, Europe, is first to determine when a seizure is, is about yes. to happen. And then second, to somehow stimulate the brain to prevent the seizure from taking place, which would, exactly. in this case, prevent an epileptic seizure. So... In terms of what you know about Neurop so far, what do you have in terms of measures to, to show that it's worth 
continuing the pursuit of developing it. Mm-hmm. So there's a large, large amount of data that we collect at Toronto Western Hospital from epilepsy patients, as well as international databases. And these are sort of benchmarking databases. So they're, they're data that are labeled by experts. They're labeled when seizure starts, when the seizure ends, where the seizure is occurring. And we use this data and we, we sort of pretend that it's coming in real time to Neurop, and we test if Neurop is actually able to do what we expect it to do. Uh, the long and short of it that is Neurop exceeds kind of our expectations and is better than you know anything out there that we're aware of. This Thus, is in terms example, of detecting an epileptic seizure before it happens. Detecting an epilepsy before it happens, uh, how specific its detections are, how it's not fooled frequently by other types of brain activity, which is not a seizure, which would be more insensitive to false positives. So, and the location of the seizure as well? Absolutely. Wow. So in terms of testing the efficacy of, uh, of Neurop, tell us about your relationship now with the veterinary school at University of Guelph. So that's a very exciting opportunity that arose, I think in part through Crania, through a collaboration with uh, a local industry partner called Synaptive, uh, where they were partnering with Animal Health Partners, which was developing a relationship with University Health Network around comparative medicine. And the concept is uh, experimental treatments and devices are deployed in naturally occurring disease in animals to sort of optimize these approaches and these treatments for improving human health. And the really incredible thing is, is that uh, epilepsy occurs in dogs at approximately the same rate as it does in humans. Huh. The forms of epilepsy are, are, are very similar to humans. The electrical signals and patterns that occur during dog epilepsy uh, seizures in, in dogs is very similar to humans. And so they actually are a very good model. I mean, I use model in the sense of sort of not so much that we create that epilepsy, but it's naturally occurring right. to actually test out new approaches for epilepsy. And the really other interesting thing is, is that uh, Animal Health Partners, in fact, has within its uh, surgical suites the very types of sort of surgical tools that we would use on the human side of things and as well are very willing to actually implement new approaches, new devices, new surgical techniques. And so this is a, an emerging uh, relationship that we have. And our first step is, of course, we always you know, work our way to invasiveness is to start with an implantable device that uses Neurop at its core. So Neurop is going to be the heart of this, of this device, the, the guts of it, the brains of it, sorry, mm-hmm. the guts of it. <laughs> Although there are more neurons in the gut than in the brain, but anyway, the, <laughs> the brains of it. Um, and it'll be an exercise for us to create a fully implantable device. And so that's something that we're, we're super excited about. Of course, it's a, it's a learning process for us, but uh, that's our, our next big step. And I think one of the really amazing other opportunities, which again, you, you kind of wonder if this is by design, is that you know, we have the world expert in canine epilepsy here in Ontario, which is pretty remarkable. So I think you know, we're very, very excited with the opportunity. So the table is set. Have you reached the first stage in terms of a safety trial? We actually have our first device prototyped. Um, so we, we haven't got yet to the implantation. We've also building a company around this approach. And that's another sort of learning experience for us. Sure. And of course, with, with getting the capital to, to start the company, we'll actually have the capital to start to build uh, these devices. On the other hand, there's a lot of uh, surgical nuances. And so we're working with the uh, neurologists on the animal side to develop the surgical protocols to do these type of trials. And the next step being, of course, that when we move to the brain, we're actually developing the robotic devices to actually do the implantations with another a local Canadian startup and a colleague of mine, Victor Yang, with a company called 7D, which develops surgical navigation uh, devices and robotic approaches to implanting devices. So, so that's kind of our incremental step. Potentially groundbreaking, yeah. a game changer for people with epilepsy. Would it be for treatment-resistant patients or everyone? This is really for the medically refractory patients. Uh, and these are actually a subset of those patients whom we cannot offer uh, a surgery to remove a part of their brain to help them with their seizures. And 
the genesis of this idea, like how did the notion of a chip that could detect and then stop an epileptic seizure, how did that yeah. come to you? This has actually been an idea that, you know, probably been around since the 30s or 40s. Um, in fact, uh, when you look at some of the pioneering work by Wilder Penfield, you know, what they would do uh, epilepsy surgeries while the patient's awake, they'd have electrodes placed on their brain. These individuals would be engaged, would be talking about, you know, their life and everything like that. And, and you could often evoke a seizure and, and you could stop a seizure too by electrically stimulating the brain. So there was this realization that you can electrically stimulate the brain to cause a seizure and you can electrically stimulate the brain to stop a seizure. So this idea really has, has been there for a very long time. It's kind of why it such, has such an emotional component, I think, for many of us in the epilepsy field, because it's been such a longstanding idea. I think what's really exciting from, from our point of view is that, you know, I really think we have you know, an incredible nucleus of people here at the University of Toronto who are really leading on the engineering side to sort of implement things that are typically not implementable in real time. And I think that's a big thing to, to distinguish for in people's minds is that, you know, we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence and these types of computational approaches take a lot of time. So it takes many hours for computers to churn through this data. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, we can, we're not afforded that luxury in somebody who is having a seizure. And so the engineering problem is, is how do you sort of take these sophisticated, difficult computational problems and make it run in real time on hardware? And I think that's where really we excel. I'm curious in your travels, how is Toronto perceived in terms of being a, a med tech innovation center? You know, one would be, have to be myopic not to realize what's happening. And so we have, you know, incredible endeavors like Crania. We have a Max Planck Center that's developing at University of Toronto around neurotechnology. We have a new collaborative program in neuromodulation being developed at the University of Toronto. In addition, we have the Vector Institute here, which is a, really a, a machine learning mecca for all these sort of advanced computational techniques. We have a world-class engineering faculty. And I think really when, you know, when we put Crini together as sort of this center for advancing neurotechnology, I think the realization was we have all the pieces. I think the other really important thing, which I didn't mention I should, which is just the incredible legacy we have here in Toronto around clinical trials around neuromodulation. Mm-hmm. You know, really the pioneering work done by Anthony Lang and Andres Lozano around Parkinson's disease, you know, has positioned us as an incredible place to do clinical trials. And that's really one of our our big strengths. On the epilepsy side now, we have one of the largest programs in Canada. I would argue we have one of the the most academic programs in Canada. Now epilepsy is part of crania. It's part of this whole neurotech environment. So I feel there's an inflection point when it comes to these types of devices. And I think, you know, we're exceedingly excited. And and then when we look at our partnerships on the comparative medicine side, you kind of feel everything seems to be aligned. The stars seem to be aligned to to realize all these things. And so... That's amazing. And look, we cannot leave your research without touching on something you uh, hinted at earlier in our discussion. Another initiative with promising results for people with epilepsy. Tell us about the potential of Mozart's Sonata for two (laughs) pianos in... D major K448. Yeah. Sorry, that's, that's a right. mouthful, but yeah. <laughs> tell me about that. Ah, I mean that that's a that's a wonderful story too, which has a very deep-rooted history in a lot of math and a lot of computation. And I think the really thing that you know many people have been enamored by is that you know music is a universal language. And it seems almost impossible. And you know, I kind of joke in the lab now that pretty well everything in our lives is neuromodulation. I mean, this podcast is neuromodulation. You know, you'll remember something from this podcast and your brain will have changed. And so... Let's um, hope so. so. <laughs> let's hope so, exactly. <laughs> For the better, I hope. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is actually an interesting story that uh, sort of is born out of uh, the Mozart effect, which I think people are, are probably aware of and, and was kind of debunked in a way but it has a very interesting uh, protagonist, a guy named Gordon Shaw, who's a very strong computational person who kind of developed a model around how different types of stimuli can affect brain activity. And he was very interested in Mozart's effect on spatial learning. And his model actually that he developed displayed some type of activity, which when people looked at it, thought they'd look like seizures. And so he developed this idea that maybe 
external stimuli, and particularly Mozart, which appeared to have specific effects on uh, spatial reasoning, might have effects or beneficial effects for people with epilepsy. And so this started like a 20-year literature, which you know we do review in the paper. And our contribution to this story is that we, we sort of took a, a very rigorous approach to using the piece in a clinical setting, but developing the appropriate, what we feel is the appropriate control piece to really test the hypothesis. Mm. Is, that, is this piece doing something? And so given sort of my computational bent and the lab's computational bent, what we did was we took the Mozart piece, uh, K448, the first six minutes of it, and we scrambled it in such a way mathematically that it had all the same components of it that the original piece had, but it lacked the rhythmicity of the original piece. And so then we used that as our, our control piece and individuals were exposed to the original and the control. And it, we, we liked the design. It's a powerful design, which is a crossover design. So the same individual is their own control. Uh, we also did electrical recordings uh, during the, the exposure to the Mozart piece, uh, as well as control piece. And we did this over a year. And I have to admit, I was pretty nihilistic about it. Uh, you know, I'm sort of like the very hardcore basic science person, like, wow, this is not going to do anything. And I was incredibly surprised. Um, you know, we showed uh, an almost 50% reduction in seizure frequency uh, in individuals while they listened to the control piece for three months. What, what spectrum were the epilepsy patients on? Are These were all ref medically, medically refractory patients who, who were not well controlled on their medications. But pre-surgery? Pre-surgery or not actually deemed to be surgical candidates. Wow. Yeah. So would you take this into the clinic? Absolutely. And of course, we have a lot of theories which are well-grounded in, in science of why this music might have something quite unique in it, as opposed to other composers, other forms of music, and other pieces. Do you know what that is, what that component is? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a hypothesis that we're working on. I'm working on this with uh, a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, um, Marjan Rafi. And one of the unique things about the Mozart piece, and actually just more generically to talk about music, is that enjoyability of music, there's really two components to that. And one is the surprise component of music. So when something's surprising in music, it adds to enjoyability. And also it's balanced with predictability. We actually listen to our favorite song because it's predictable. We know what it's going to sound like. Mm -hmm. it probably has some emotional component, nostalgia component. But that predictably, just why some people watch the same movie over and over and over. They mm -hmm. know exactly what's going to happen, but they, they love watching it. And so it's this balance between predictability and unpredictability, which is thought to contribute to enjoyability. And interestingly, there's actually literature published from a group in Montreal, which have shown that the Mozart music, the way it was composed, is very highly unpredictable. And the interesting thing about that is, is that when you look at seizures in the brain, the, the seizure is a in electrical activity, it's a departure from activity in the brain that looks seemingly random it's mm -hmm. a very organized activity. So you're going from unpredictable activity, which characterizes normal brain activity, to something highly predictable. And a highly predictable brain can be thought of as a pathological brain when you look at the electrical activity of it. So for example, a great example is not even epilepsy, but Parkinson's disease, where individuals have a tremor, and that tremor is associated with a very clear sinusoidal oscillation within the basal ganglia deep in the brain. And that's not the way the brain likes to work. It doesn't like to create these kind of predictable type of signals. Hmm. So Mozart is very unpredictable. So it's very much like brain activity. So we're working on this type of hypothesis in that it's the unpredictability of music that induces the unpredictability in brain activity, which actually potentially suppresses seizures. So it's maintaining the natural state yeah. of the brain, which is unpredictability. Exactly. Preventing the predictability of a seizure. <laughs> You're listening to Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at Toronto's University Health Network, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote, and we're speaking today with Dr. Tafik Valiente, award-winning neurosurgeon and scientist at UHN's Kremble Research Institute. Dr. Valiente has invented a first-of-its-kind implant that can sense epileptic seizures and stop them before they occur. His research is supported in part by the Toronto General and Western Hospital Foundation. 
Now, Tafik, you're born in Montreal, raised in Toronto. You've said you grew up on sci-fi TV shows like Star Trek and The Six Million Dollar Man and dreamed of being part of that world and that you, you always wanted to understand the brain and epilepsy. That desire, in part, I understand, was inspired when you were uh, just a boy playing softball. Do you mind telling us that story? Yeah, I've been always an avid sports uh, person, but baseball has sort of been a staple for me ever since I was a kid. And, um, you know, I think our life experiences do shape our, our paths, maybe either consciously or subconsciously. I always joke that, uh, you know, the, the bedtime story my mom probably told me was that you're going to be a doctor. So, uh, <laughs> so maybe that's how that happened. But I think I've always been very sensitive to sort of the plight of individuals. I've always been sort of that that kind of person when I was young. And I remember one of my coaches, his son had epilepsy and I always distinctly remember his son coming to our baseball practices wearing a helmet because he had a form of epilepsy uh, where uh, individuals without any warning fall. They lose all sort of tone in their body, they fall. And, and these individuals have very severe fractures of their face and their teeth and their skulls oh and wrists and uh. it's, it's terrible. And I remember distinctly a time when his son stopped showing up and I'm not sure how I learned about it, whether I asked my mom or, but I ultimately learned that he had died from, from epilepsy. Oh. Yeah. And I think this kind of left uh, an indelible mark and for some strange reason, and I don't know where this came from, but in my early teens, I kind of felt that and I don't know why the brain per se, and maybe because of this experience with this young guy, was I developed a fascination with the brain. And I thought that epilepsy was a way I could understand the brain. That's how those two things kind of got merged into one. Yeah. You, you mentioned your mom reading you bedtime stories and that it's every immigrant family's dream for their kids to go into medicine. Yeah. For your parents, what did it mean to them that you fulfilled that dream? Because they are first-generation yeah. first immigrants to Canada. I think the general parents' dream is probably that the kids are happy. And I think I always took to sort of um, uh, academic things, and I had a very significant interest in science. And And I think that they gave me that freedom to kind of explore everything that I wanted to, whether it was, you know, the my scholastic stuff or music or sports and everything like that. And I think, you know, at, at this point in time, because we can always look back now and I do chat with them, you know, they're getting older and, you know, I would give them full credit for what I have done because they've created that environment, they created the opportunity for me. And I think that they are just, you know, very, very happy. I think that, you know, my mom comes from a very strong sense of social activism and medicine is a form of social activism. It's about giving back and taking care of people. Mm -hmm. And I think for her, that's always been kind of the overarching. Medicine is but one way of doing that, you know, which of course I love. And I think the other thing that was kind of left, which is a very big part of my lab too, are our community involvements. And I think she loves that aspect as well. I think that that's kind of how she exercised her sense of community. And, you know, she, she would always say there's nothing's not negotiable except for being born and dying. And so everything could be changed. And so you, know, you try to change things of course, to the best in whatever environment you're in. And so I think that's kind of that general framework. It was kind of really imprinted upon us. My brother is actually an a environmental policy guy. And so he's very, you know, interested in creating policies around plastic reuse and, you know, and recycling and stuff. So we have we kind of had this, you know, ingrained into us about creating social change. And I think medicine is, you know, I think a very, a very nice way of doing that. You know, we should add, because I think the story is amazing, your mom's story. We should, you know, give a shout out to her because yeah. she was orphaned as a teen, left her native Pakistan with her older sisters, sails to England to make a new beginning. And then after high school, sets sail again for Canada to be yeah. a chartered accountant in Montreal. Yeah. The courage of your mom to uproot her life and start over twice. How, yeah. how does that experience shape you? <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I think it's a cool question. Uh, if, if I really think about it, I think that it speaks to her adage about sky's the limit, which is almost like, you know, whatever you put your mind to, you know, you, you will do. And I think that, you know, I've kind of recreated myself uh, a number of times in my professional career. And I sometimes wonder if that kind of 
sense of excitement you get from change or embarking on something new overrides the fear or overrides that status quo bias. You know, I, I think the one cool thing about mentors, and of course, parents are always mentors, is that when you look at them, you realize what's possible, right? In a way, they, they've, they've done it. And so you go, wow, okay, you know, that, that can be done. You can, you can struggle and you can you recreate yourself. And I think, you know, the mentorship creates that example for us. Yeah. So as a leader in your lab, how do you inspire possibility uh, within your team as a mentor? I love the feeling of autonomy. I had that when I was a PhD student. I had that as as a child growing up from my parents, you know, the freedom to do kind of do things, of course, within the scope of, you know, hopefully being, you know, meaningful into society, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing that I encourage most in my lab is to have a why, to have a question that drives you. I don't want to be that mentor that says, you know, I have this idea and I want you to do these experiments and I want you to make this figure I don't want to be that micromanager. I want people to explore and I want people to come up with their own ideas. So I really encourage people to have their why. And I think that that comes partly too from something that I've learned in my life, which is that, you know, life is not linear and there are hardships that face you that you don't predict. And if you're very focused on the utilitarian nature of what you're doing about, if I do this, I get this, rather than some overarching sense of meaning and purpose, then those barriers and hurdles and obstacles can almost be terminal for you. And so when, when somebody comes to my lab, I tell them that I don't want to be that person who gives you a project, come to me, read your stuff, come to me with your why. And I think that they will be happiest then if they're exploring their why. And I really, really believe now that in my position now, and hopefully, you know, this will continue the success of the lab and the funding that we have is to really create an environment for young people to come and truly flourish. In many ways, I guess, kind of what I was given as a child, both at home as well as in the lab when I was a PhD student, that freedom to explore. And and I'd love to create that environment for the next generation. So, you know, as a role model, people are watching you constantly to to model themselves after you. So when you face failure in the lab, how how do you navigate that challenge? yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it, it kind of goes back to the idea of a negative result. And, you know, b- both types of results and failure, if you want to call it that, is evidence to you about how things work and how you perceive how you perceive your current state. And so you might have failed because of circumstance. You might have failed because your expectations might have been incorrect. You might have failed because your formulations may have been wrong. But regardless of one way or the other, they provide you information about the process that you're, you're undertaking. And I think that, strangely enough, I find failure as a little bit exciting hmm. uh, in the sense because I think if you've been fortunate enough to have success in your life, you develop these kind of rose-colored glasses, which you think everything's possible. And I think you know failure uh, reorients you to help you understand what can or cannot be done. And I think also, too, then as a mentor... If somebody comes to the premature conclusion something can't be done, then it's my responsibility to say, hey, well, maybe, you know, maybe you could try it this way or do it that way. And, and failure, is, it sounds like a negative term in a way, but I think that when I see somebody struggling in the lab, my first thought is that this is a young, productive individual that might be facing something personal or interpersonal or something like that. And I tend to want to always explore kind of what are maybe other factors there might be a play at that time. So, well, failure, negative result. It's just we are not really taught in life how to deal with failure. Yeah. Well, I have a favorite saying in the lab. I always joke with them. I say, you know, in adversity, there's opportunity. So that's my my favorite line. That's a good one. <laughs> well, you, you okay? So you see patients most yeah. every day. You're you're keenly aware of their need for better treatments. I'm curious if that puts pressure on you. Uh, I think it's a healthy pressure. It's kind of like, you know, people ask me now, like, you know, when you, when you go operate, uh, what makes you excited about the surgery? And of course, you know, by the time that you've done something for 17 years now, the surgery itself, the technical aspects of it are not the things that, that excite me per se. It's the hope for that patient. I tend to think more about what's it going to be like for them, you know, two years from now or or three years from now. So as a physician in the clinic, 
I feel um, compelled in a, in a positive way, in a hopeful way, in a very grateful way that in fact, I can translate their needs to something in the lab and something concrete. So I feel super grateful all the time. I feel grateful for that responsibility. I also feel very grateful that they would trust in me that they can say, hey, you know, how's your chip coming along? Or when is that going to be ready? And so it's like, yeah, that's right. You're right. We got to, you know, push harder on that. And so I think it's a, it's a healthy thing, I think. The flip side, of course, though, is the chip, your research, for anyone in research, it, it takes time. Like, yeah. how do you reconcile the urgency of the patient with the rigor of science? I think the one way one reconcile it, I mean, for myself as an individual, uh, is to uh, to potentially try to create influence in a number of spheres. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, as human beings, you know, our satisfaction in life is really for us to define. You know, when you look at Stoic philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, our reality is the way we choose to perceive it. And so for me, the reward system that I've developed is about creating change. So like, am I part of things that are leading to change. And so I drive great satisfaction on Purple Day, for example, when the lab is out there or when we, you know, pre-COVID, when we turned the atrium all purple and the patients would come, because I know that those are also beneficial and healthy for the community as a whole. And so maybe my mental trick around it is to be involved on multiple spheres or multiple levels so that if something's not moving in one area, not because of the lack of effort, but just because of the nature of the exercise, then there are other things that bring one satisfaction. And I think that as a clinician, one is very, very fortunate too, because on an individual by individual basis, that act of giving in the sense of giving of your time to somebody is really always reciprocated by that patient through their gratefulness and their, and their thankfulness. And I think that these are the sustaining aspects, I think, of the profession and of science. To take this down that road a little further, you're obviously very passionate, uh, especially about your patients, uh, yeah. as well as your work. And the fact that for you, this work is all about being in the service of others. Yeah. Does that drive uh, and always wanting to improve things, does it have a downside? Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I went through a phase in my professional career where I think I lost that for a time because I got very caught up in other metrics or other sense of, of value and other sense of reward, which is kind of the sense of value and reward that academic and institutions sort of place upon one in regards to how many papers have you published, how many grants have you captured, et cetera, et cetera. And these kind of very objective things when, you know, in fact, when a student will ask me, you know, what science do you, I say, it's like chocolate ice cream. I just like the taste of it. Hmm. And and if it changes to something which is external to you, then it feels like a, a terrible pressure because it doesn't feel like it's originating from inside of you. At least that's for me personally. So I struggled a lot in my professional career. I went through a significant period of time where I was you know, pretty unhappy overall. But, um, and, and I think you need critical events. And that's where I, where I joke about, you know, in adversity is opportunity because in adversity, then you're asked yourself once again, Am I applying the principles that have brought me, that always brought me to this point? And I think that when that happened and I kind of got back to sort of understanding, then I, I reached out to the community instead of saying, oh, well, all I have to do is sit and write papers. It was like, oh, how's the community doing? So I started reaching out to the community. I started getting very involved. I got on the various boards of the various community organizations. We started to think about how do we create standardized care through the province and that became an enriching and, and rewarding experience to me. And I tell the residents this, that amongst many of my professional, what, what I would say, the things that brought me the greatest value has been my community involvement, which coming into an academic role, I would have never thought of that as being this, the sustaining aspect of my profession when things were difficult. So to think this period, would, would you call it a, a, a burnout or depression? Yeah, I, I think it was definitely a combination of both. I think it was a combination of having a set of expectations which were unmet and, and not knowing how to meet those. And also a sort of a sense of fatigue that I didn't feel like I was up to the task because whatever I was trying didn't seem like uh, it was going anywhere. So you have this kind of sense of hopelessness and hopelessness 
is a very big component of depression where you feel no matter what I do, I'm going to be stuck in this state. And so I think it was definitely a, a combination of the two that sort of brought me to a point where it was really that, that adverse state, which I would describe as having components of both of those, for sure. I'm sorry to hear that. So yes. today, because yeah. uh, this may be instructive to others, how do you take care of yourself? How do you guard against that? I remember when I was in the thick of it, uh, a good friend of mine asked me, so what do you need to do right now? What is the most important thing you need to do? And I said, I want to be connected to people. And, uh, and it sounds so, I don't know, maybe cliche or I don't know how to do it, how, to, how, to, how it sounds, how it sounds the individual listening. But these pursuits in general, academic and whatever, can be isolating. And particularly in the medical profession where if you're struggling, you never want to show a sense of weakness, right? Or, mm-hmm. or I can't handle this. And particularly as a, you know, as a surgeon, uh, you know, you, you'd never... You never sort of say, oh, I need help for something. I mean, God forbid, right? Mm-hmm. And so it really was this, almost this, this, this just switch in my brain, which was like, instead of trying to do everything on my own, was this new realization, first and foremost, that everybody struggles, that everybody struggles with something and that it's okay to, to talk and it's okay to reach out. It's okay to connect on a level where you can you know, talk about how you're feeling and what you're struggling with. And the way that translates to this time for me is, unlike the old me, which was largely grown up in a very military type of training, which is, you know, neurosurgery and the whole surgical specialty in of itself, is that, you know, when I see people struggling in the lab or even when they're not struggling, for me, the most uh, interest that I have is in the well-being of that individual. Because the assumption is that I've chosen this individual to be in the lab because it's based on merit, that they've demonstrated ability, et cetera, et cetera. Probably the thing that's impeding them is probably some extraneous factor, some life factor, something that's happening. COVID is an incredible example of just showing how life can be turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And how do you adapt to that? Say you're a young person, you're here alone, you're an international student, you have no family here. And so in the past, I'd be like, well, the person's not working hard enough. I mean, that's what I understand. I mean, as a surgical resident, you just work harder and harder and harder. And I think for me, what's it created is that it's created in a community for me. So, you know, it's not only the epilepsy community, but it's my, my lab is my community in a way. And, you know, my colleagues are a community. So that's kind of was one of the most important things was that you can reach out and talk to people. You can share these things because everybody struggles. Everybody's human. These are natural parts of life. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. And I think the other important thing that I learned, which is that I think very high-functioning people, not necessarily that I put myself in that category, but others who are very high-functioning, you know, have a way of beating themselves up. So you know, the reason why they got there was because it's a litany of stuff going in your brain, like I should have done this, I could have done that better, why didn't I put this in, why didn't I? And it's this idea from you know, this Buddhist philosophy of you know, gentle, loving-kindness, where you kind of accept yourself for what you are, you accept you know, things you might have not done right. It doesn't mean that distracts you from actually applying yourself, but, you know, you just take it easy on yourself, right? So, so be kind to yourself. And I think that that's something which I think is so critically important. And I think what that teaches you too, then, is that you then, if you can be kind to yourself, you can be kind to others. You, you understand that you yourself went through a difficult time. You yourself are human and that you need to afford that to, to the people around you. And I think that for me was a difficult lesson to learn just because of how, hard life was when I was not feeling that well, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been one of the strangest, one of the best lessons I've learned in life. So That's an amazing story. And I, I, I wonder if, you know, healthcare workers in general struggle with self-care uh, and getting to that point where you are is so important. I think so. I think that, you know, I'm very active now, increasingly active in wellness in our division. I work with uh, an individual in general internal medicine, uh, Tarek Abdelalim. I'm working with him to hopefully sort of combine sort of the surgeon medical side sort of to show that it's just one profession. It's really not medical surgical. And I think when you start to talk to people about these things, you just realize just how much people struggle with. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of weird that a profession or something you profess to be can actually prevent you from kind of being well yourself. And I think that the one thing which I learned is that 
insight is not a function of intellect, right? It, it's hard work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> got to work at it. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Wrapping up here. Yeah. It sounds like you spend every waking moment consumed with your work. <laughs> Why does this matter to you so much? I think it's a, it's a value. It's, it's a value that I grew up with. It's a, it's this weird emotional or healthy, hopefully healthy emotional attachment to creating change. And so I think that that's the thing that gets me most, uh, most excited. I think I've been very fortunate to see some of the effects of the things that I do, be it at a, a small scale level with the individual patient at the community level. And I think the feeling I love the most is when I'm in clinic and I can say, I can't do this for you, but I think we can might be able to do this for you in the future. And I just love that feeling. I feel obligated. I feel responsible. You know, I feel purposeful in that way. I feel committed. I mean, you know, it's almost a pact between me and the patient, right? It's like, okay, you know, I'm really going to try to do this. And, uh, and I think also too is, I mean, I've talked a bit academically about it, but it's just, I love it. And I just, I, I love, you know, every facet of, of intellectual pursuit and knowledge generation and, and the puzzle of the brain. I think it's, uh, I, I can't get enough about reading about it or trying to figure it out. And I'm very lucky that I have a lot of great collaborators who I get to bounce ideas off of, uh, from psychology to engineering, to material science, to, to you name it. So I feel like a bit of a kid in a way, like, you know, it's like I can kind of explore things I want. The idea comes like, Hey, let's try this out. And so, so it's almost kind of like this regression in a way of, you know, kind of having your ice cream all the time, I guess, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Tafik Valiente, award-winning neurosurgeon and scientist at UHN's Kremble Research Institute. Thanks for sharing with us and continued success. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Valiente's research is made possible in part thanks to generous donor support. If you'd like to contribute to this groundbreaking medical research, please go to www.tgwhf, that's tgwhf.ca forward slash podcast. For more on the podcast, go to our website, www.behindthebreakthrough.ca and let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this edition of Behind the Breakthrough, the podcast all about groundbreaking medical research and the people behind it at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada's largest research and teaching hospital. I'm your host, Christian Cote. Thanks for listening.